Hello and welcome to episode nine of the HD Lockdown Pod. We're back. The lockdown is easing ever so slightly, um, but we're still here, still locked down and still podding. Joining me today, as ever, in the virtual studio, um, Mr. Patterson. Hello, how are you? Hello, hello, not bad. How is yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, still here, still uh, still surviving, just about. It was your birthday um, on Sunday, am I right? It was, yes, correct. Happy birthday, happy birthday. Thank you very much. So, uh, tell us, um, what did you get for your birthday, Mr. Parson? I got um, Flea, the Red Hot Jelly Peppers bass player's um, autobiography. I got uh, Homo Deus, a book about like what humans might become in the future. Uh, what else did I get? Well, I know you got yourself a little treat. I got myself uh, an electric scooter to get to school on, um, so I will look stupendously cool on the way in. Yes, yeah, um, so uh, those of you uh, who are kind of keeping an eye out for Mr. Patterson's long-awaited return to school, um, you will see him uh, sort of sweeping past you on his new electric scooter. Um, do, uh, do point and uh, make appreciative noises, I suppose. Mr. Mr. Lawton, how are things? What have you been up to? Um, the good thank you. Um, I've been up to Stoke-on-Trent with the relaxed rules now to see the family and know uh, what the dog. Um, been reading. I've uh, reading Terraformed by Joy White. Very good. And I've uh, been listening to things. And I, I like this opportunity to just say about um, a really impassioned um, podcast segment that uh, was in the Stadio podcast. It's a football one. I know not many of you will be interested, but bear with me. A guy in there called Musa spent on 20 minutes at the start of the episode with his co-host uh, just talking about racism. And it's really powerful indeed. And given everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter and as teachers having to be apolitical, but teachers have to be educators, um, i just like to point you in the direction of it really and say you should have a listen. And if you haven't been looking at literature to read, definitely get involved in something like um, Edo, uh, Rene Edo Lodge's um, Why I Stop Talking to White People About Race or uh, Carla's Natives or Gary Young's uh, Who Am I and Should It Matter in the 21st Century. They're all very good books. And uh, obviously if lots of them are selling out on Amazon at the moment, which is really good. People are educating themselves, but... Um, Go and read something uh, that's free. Um, in the new statement, Gary Young wrote a piece called We Can't Breathe, which uh, for geographers at A-level, you'll be reading it next week as your bowel wit because he compares what's currently going on with the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter movement to the tragedies that occurred following Hurricane Katrina in America. So um, there's lots of really good things to go out there and read at the moment about what uh, what's going on in the world. Yeah, and I think it's um, important for everybody to you know at all times to try and further their understanding of other people's lives and what's going on in the world and particularly i think it's worth you know reminding our maybe our year 11 and year 13 listeners who haven't got kind of as much maybe to focus their mind and attention on at the moment you know do keep learning do keep reading do keep listening and uh, keep your ears open to uh, what's out there um mr DeSalvo, welcome back yeah, first of all, sorry, Mr. Patterson, I forgot your birthday. Um, so happy belated birthday. I do have a question in regards to your scooter because I thought about getting one myself at some stage. 
Um, does he come with a basket so you can put your marking, like you know, your books to mark in? Because or does it, it does throw your balance? Have you tried? Uh, that is an ad, an optional extra. Maybe next, maybe Christmas. Right, I see. Is it Mr. Patterson marks his books? Does he? That, that's. <laughs> Um, yeah, but um, no, other than that, I've um, been stripping wallpaper and uh, cleaning uh, walls and plaster walls. So I'm going to apply for the 60 minute makeover job probably uh, in the future. I've become very um, DIY, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, an expert, anyway, yes, but yeah, that's all really. Very good, very good. Um, right, so this week on uh, episode nine of the HD Lockdown Pods, what, what you've got to, to look forward to, um, another round of Mysterious Country, uh, is to be expected, of course. Um, we've got um, a little bit of discussion in the history section about the history of a kind of a local historical site, uh, Kenilworth Castle, which is going to become very, very important to our year 10 historians um, over the next few weeks. So a bit of an introduction to that, uh, of that particular site. Geography Corner is having a bit of a takeover this week, uh, a new feature which we um, are looking forward to. Humanities at the Movies, uh, where each episode, uh, the, the four of us will uh, sit down and watch, of course not at the same time or in the same place necessarily, um, sit down and watch uh, a film uh, that has either a history or a geography or a languages kind of link in some way, shape or form. This week it's geography and it's Dante's Peak, all about a, a volcano. So we'll talk more about that uh, in part four. Um, and then in part five, uh, we have uh, the 90 second challenge. Mr. Patterson will be taking on the challenge this week uh, within language liaison, which uh, discusses the Francophone and Hispanophone world. So we, uh, we shall look forward to those uh, segments coming up. Um, but before we go forward, just a bit of a quick shout out once again, as ever, Mr. Lawton, the HD lockdown quiz. Yeah, whilst everybody else had a week off last week, uh, we carried on with the quiz. And because of the relaxed lockdown laws, uh, some people have uh, decided to go out and uh, enjoy the world, which I can understand. But we're still running and you can come along and join us on Sunday evenings at 7pm. Um, we've deviated away from our traditional subjects now. So it is a little bit more fun, I would say, in inverted commas. I find answering questions about geography very fun. Uh, but some people out there may prefer the rounds that we've got, such as films, musical theatre, Disney, and all that shenanigans. Yeah, we had, a, we had a, a round devoted to the TV phenomenon Friends last week, which very much split, um, I think split our audience. Some people really were not happy answering questions about a show that was on before many of them were born. But there we are. Uh, right, so I think that brings us to the end of uh, part one. We'll be back in just a few moments with part two. Okay, welcome back to part two. And it is, of course, our favourite time of the week. It is Mysterious Country. I'm using random data, using various data. All random facts, don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I, I said, ooh, Mysterious Country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Welcome everybody back to Mysterious Country for our eighth week. Our current reigning champion is Mr. Eccleston. 
Um, and this week we're carrying on with the same rules that we had before half term. So we're going to have three different mysterious countries. Our contestants, our teachers are going to have several clues to uh, try and figure out what the country is. And best of three. And if we have a tie, we've got the tie break question at the end. Let's get on with it. So country number one, clue number one. This country's Alps, in inverted commas, receive more snow than Switzerland. So you're telling us that there are more than one set of Alps, potentially. Hmm. I'm saying that it's that country's Alps. Yes. I should just say mountains, but I think that was talking about Switzerland in there too. It would make <laughs> um, sense to say that. De Salvo. Austria. No. We had France, didn't we, before, I think. Pat. Patterson. Italy. No. The Alps are located there. So, but, but, but good point, though. Good point. I could be trying to lead you away there, yes. yes. Mm. Um, more people gamble here per capita, per person, than anywhere else in the world. More people yes. gamble. De Salvo. Monaco. Incorrect. Mm. Patterson. Japan. Incorrect. Um, Ike, I'm going to have a go with China. Incorrect. Clue number three. The longest fence in the world is located in this country, spanning 5,614 kilometres. That's quite a long way. Yes. DeSalvo. Russia. Incorrect. Ike, Azerbaijan. Incorrect. Pat. Patterson. Um, Mexico. Incorrect. Clue number four. There are 60 designated wine regions in this country. There are 60 designated... Chile. Incorrect. They like wine, don't they? Yes, they do. <laughs> Patterson. Australia. Patterson wins. Ooh. It's Australia. Well done indeed. So um this is the this country is found in the only continent with no active volcanoes, which is very topical today that it leads to our um uh, film. Um the currency here is dollars and it's a former British colony, so that should have given it away for you guys, uh, really. Mysterious country number two. Clue one. This country has a coast on the Mediterranean Sea. Ike. Greece. Incorrect. Pat. Patterson. Croatia. Incorrect. Des. Desalvo. Albania. Incorrect. This country has the currency of the pound. Ike. Des. Malta. Incorrect. I was going to say the same. Pat. Patterson. Hey. Gibraltar. No, that's not in the Mediterranean, is it? No, it's not. No, okay. It's not a recognised independent state. Third clue. This country was formerly a unitary republic. It is now a semi-presidential republic, which means that it has two vice-presidents. Ike, Cyprus. Incorrect. Next clue. 
This country is home of one of the world's largest and oldest mosques. Okay, so it's got the pound. It's on the Mediterranean. We've all gone European so far, but it could obviously be um, Middle East or Africa. Um, Ike? Nicholson? Jordan? No. No. Des? Salvo. Lebanon? No. Uh, Patterson. Let's get the pound, you said. The pound, yes. Uh, uh, give me, uh, I don't know, Egypt. Does it have to be pound sterling? I mean, that's the thing, or is it when we say the pound, do we mean, could it just be a pound? It's, it's, uh, I say pound as like when I have countries that have the currency of the dollar. Yeah. It doesn't always mean US. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah, so it's just... Yeah. So, um, next clue. The population of the country has decreased by 4 million people from 2010 to 2020. Wow. De Salvo. Israel. Incorrect. Pat. Patterson. Libya. Incorrect. Does Palestine count, Ike Palestine? Incorrect. I think I would accept it too. It's one of the two when yeah. you have 195 countries and 197 Palestine is one of the two. And it's accepted there. Um, this one should give it to where I think the historians will maybe dive in here. Um, contains the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. Uh, Patterson. It's uh, Syria. Syria. Damascus, well I believe. Patterson wins, yeah, Damascus. Uh, Damascus referring to the vibrant cotton that's available in the region in clothes. That's where the city Damascus comes from a name. And the last clue is going to be it's been civil war since 2011, hence the 4 million population decrease. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. So uh, Mr. Patterson wins a week. But just to finish it off, as always, let's just do country number three very quickly. So country number three was... One, gained independence from France in 1960. Like Algeria. No. Uh, Nigeria. No, uh, it's a British colony. Um, next uh, two, life expectancy here is 60 years old. Um, the oldest on the planet being around 81.2, which is Japan. But... Uh, Pat. Yep. The Ivory Coast. Blah, blah, blah. Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, no. um, Senegal? No. Two good guesses, though. Um, this is part of the Slave Coast. Right. So we are in the, in the right part of the world. Pat. Patterson. Cameroon? Incorrect. Okay. West African. Um, Ike. Burkina Faso, is that even French? Um, incorrect, and it's landlocked. Um, it's slave coast, would imply it's on the coast. <laughs> uh, it, it, the next clue is it borders Ghana, Benin, and Burkina Faso, and the Gulf of Guinea, if you call that a border. It's going to be painfully obvious when you say it. Go on. And the capital city is Lome. Oh, that, that doesn't help. <laughs> um, Pat. Yeah. Sierra Leone. Correct. De Salvo. Got anything? 
Guinea? What would you call it? Guinea. Guinea. Uh, no, no, not at all. It's, um, it's uh, Togo. Togo. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the famous, uh, are you going to eat in or to go? Uh, anyway, right. If, you, if, you'd uh, said, um, if you'd said, uh, where does Emmanuel Adebayor hail from, then of course I would have had it in one. But... So 2-0 winner this week. And the first time that we didn't actually get an answer was this week. Uh, we've got Mr. Patterson taking back the crown. Well done, Mr. Patterson. Uh, have you got anything to say in your success? Um, no. Fabulous. Have a great week, everybody, and thank you for playing Mysterious Country. Ooh, mysterious Country. No, I can't stop until you are right. Okay, that brings us to the end of part two. We'll return in just a few seconds with part three. Welcome back to part three of the HD Lockdown pod. It's the history section, as always. And this week, we are going to introduce to, um, particularly to our year 10 historians, um, a really important site that they need to become more familiar with over the next few weeks. And that is somewhere that some of you may have visited, actually, Kenilworth Castle, which can be uh, found in Warwickshire, which isn't too far from us um, at Boa. Now, Kenilworth uh, is important for us because it's part of what we call the historic environment. So it's the one site that all GCSE uh, history students need to learn about uh, in more depth and detail. Now, of course, as you're studying uh, Elizabethan England, um, then Kenilworth is important uh, in the Elizabethan period, yes, but it also has a wider history. So this part of the podcast um, is going to be focusing on talking about just the general the history of this site, why it's important, what how has it changed over the years, what kind of things have been happening there. Um, so to start with, I think it's important to note that Kenilworth, uh, whilst yes, it was a castle at times and also a palace, reveals major moments in English history, tells us something about this country and how it's um, changed to a certain degree over the many centuries. Kenilworth was first built uh, back in the 1120s, so we're talking about the early 12th century, at the time when a guy who, uh, who was in charge was King Henry I of England. Now, it was ordered to be built by King Henry um, as a counterbalance to the Earl of Warwick. So what that means is that it was built down the road from Warwick Castle, around about 10 miles or so, um, by uh, Henry I's Lord Chamberlain and Treasurer, Geoffrey de Clinton, as a way of balancing out the power base. He didn't want the Earl of Warwick to be too powerful, so he wanted uh, Geoffrey de Clinton to build, to build a castle at Kenilworth to keep an eye on him, to ensure that he didn't uh, get out of line. This was a time of quite uh, great unrest in England, a potential civil war on the horizon. Henry I had lost his only, uh, only son in the White Ship disaster, um, and uh, when all the people on board in the English Channel died on the crossing to France. And with his firstborn son and only son, I should say, dead, that meant that there was no male heir to the throne, and lots of nobles were jockeying for power. So because of that, he wanted a castle in Kenilworth to keep an eye on the Earl of Warwick, who he thought might have been up to no good. Some people think it was first built as a Motton Bailey castle, so that means that it's a small mound um, and largely out of wood with a, a larger uh, wooden wall around it at the bottom. 
you might have seen some of these castles when you would have studied them probably in like uh, year seven, potentially, maybe even earlier. A Mott and Bailey Castle um, was something then that may have been at Kenilworth, but we just can't be certain. It's too long ago. But what we do know is that Geoffrey de Clinton built the keep, the great tower of Kenilworth um, back in the 1120s, the, f uh, the stone building that we can still see today. And if you look at your plan of Kenilworth that you've got in your learning guide, you can see along with us that the Great Tower is uh, marked as A, the keep on the plan. So you can see that in the centre of the picture. That was the first part of Kenilworth to be built. Now, as we move forward in time, we get to the reign of King John. So the, the castle is very much in the hands of the king by this point. Um, and King John, as you may already know, was not the most popular ruler. He was excommunicated by the Pope, a bit like what happened to Queen Elizabeth in the 1500s. Um, it was alleged that he killed his own nephew. He lost huge amounts of land in France. The barons, the, uh, the nobles of England, really despised King John. And uh, John, in response to this kind of threat from the barons, um, started rebuilding his castles, improving his castles, the, the defences, uh, to make them stronger just in case he came under attack. He added the Mortimer and Lund Tower. You can see them marked as F and H on the plan of the castle. He also built uh, the Outer Bailey, which is the great wall that surrounds the castle. You can see it, uh, sort of the big black line around, around the castle building. And also, um, he uh, dammed some of the streams that you can actually see them if you go there today, and, and created the Great Mere, what's marked as the Great Lake on the plan, which was a, a, an enlarged moat, essentially, to keep the castle safe. So it was a really, really strong castle, strong walls, towers. So John makes the castle much, much harder to, uh, to take over by an opposing force. Moving on a few uh, decades now, Henry III is in charge, who's King John's son. And he become, comes into a conflict with a notable baron, a notable um, nobleman at the time, a man by the name of Simon de Montfort. You might have heard of de Montfort University in Leicester, which is named after him. Um, essentially, their quarrel, which you don't need to know uh, much about, really, but it was um, regarding uh, the Magna Carta, which you would have heard about in citizenship, where the barons were trying to ensure that the king essentially played by the rules and did as he was told and stuck to the terms that had been signed under Magna Carta. Also something known as the Provisions of Oxford, which was released in 1258, which tried to get the king to agree to regular parliaments, to listen to his people, to essentially um, not be uh, too too naughty, I suppose. Now, Henry and Simon were kind of the, the two sides of this, and they were jockeying for power. Henry had actually been captured along with um, Edward, his son, Prince Edward, by Simon, um, before going on to escape. And uh, they, they, they met at the Battle of Evesham and they fought the Battle of Evesham. And this was a, a really crucial battle for the history of England where Simon de Montfort was defeated. Now, you might think, well, what does this have to do with Kenilworth? Well, Henry had actually previously given Kenilworth as a gift to Simon when they were best friends before this conflict broke out. And Simon had actually married the king's sister, um, showing the kind of the close ties between de Montfort and the king. But when it came to the Barons' War and the Battle of Evesham, when Simon was defeated, naturally, this is you know, an unusual part of the story, but Simon's genitals were actually cut off and sent to the king's sister, Simon's wife, let's not forget, as a kind of a reminder of what a, a, a traitor Simon was. And what happened after this was something, was the Siege of Kenilworth. 
the longest siege in English history when Simon's son and Simon's supporters, the people who were still kind of fighting his cause, were, was trapped inside Kenilworth Castle and the king's uh, troops surrounded them using siege weapons and all kinds of things to try and take it. It lasted six months um, before the people inside the castle submitted. Now, it's important to remember the castle was not actually taken over. It was such a strong castle because John had made it so. But they did eventually force the people inside to submit because of the you know, starvation, essentially, and disease and so on. Kenilworth continues to be controlled by the royal family. We get later into the 14th century, the late 1300s, a very, very important figure by the name of John of Gaunt, who was the Duke of Lancaster, essentially is the son of um, Edward III of England. He is the richest man in the country. He is married into European royalty. He is someone who has incredible power and influence. Towards the end of the 14th century, John of Gaunt is the power behind the throne. Richard, the boy king, he's only about eight, nine years old, is in charge of England. And uh, John of Gaunt pulls the strings. He is in control of Kenilworth Castle and he starts to change it. It starts to become less of a fortress and more into a palace. He builds the Great Hall, which you can see marked uh, by the letter B on the plan. He builds some of the apartments, the state apartments marked by C. The Great Hall is this grand place where he would have banquets and, and you know important guests would come to stay. But he was also a man renowned for carrying out awful acts of torture for the entertainment of his guests. Some pretty horrific things would go on at Kenilworth. But he changes the nature of Kenilworth from being something that is, a, 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 like I said, like a battleground, somewhere that is to be defended, to being something where you could enjoy some luxury, um, essentially, and show off your power and prestige. It remains in royal hands throughout the 15th century, um, throughout the Wars of the Roses, and into um, almost to the time of Queen Elizabeth I. Now, just before Elizabeth was queen, actually during the reign of, of Queen Mary, it was given to John Dudley. Okay, and then you might think I know the name Dudley, of course. John Dudley was the father of Robert, the person who would be um, Elizabeth's sweetheart, and um, one of the suitors, one of the people who wanted to marry her, and also a key member of her Privy Council. But J John Dudley would go on to be accused of treason and executed as a traitor. But Robert managed to maintain control of the castle, and also, of course, maintain the affections of Elizabeth to a large degree. He, like many at the time, were desperate for um, Elizabeth to visit his castle, his home, on a royal progress. A royal progress was when the Queen would take all her entourage, her court, tens, um, hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people, to various sites around the country. She sometimes would go on progress for months at a time, stopping off at different places for a few days or a few weeks. She stayed at Kenilworth when she went there in 1575, longer than any other visit. She stayed for 19 days. This is quite unusual. Maybe usually it would only be a few days at a time. She also went again in, earlier in, in, in 1572. And when she came to Kenilworth in 1575 for that great progress, Robert Dudley wanted to make sure he pulled out all the stops. He wanted to make sure that he could impress the Queen, not just enough to gain favour and maybe a position within the Privy Council or to maintain his authority. He wanted her hand in marriage, if he could. He spent thousands of pounds, what potentially would be millions of pounds today, I'm sure, on building what is known as Leicester's Buildings, which should be marked as D on the plan. These were meant to be the grand buildings where Elizabeth and her closest courtiers would stay. Elizabeth had a dance floor 
designed and made for her. Even a private staircase was installed so that the Queen could go from her room to other rooms without potentially being seen by anybody else. Some people, of course, alleged that that private staircase was installed for Robert Dudley's use as well. Dudley entertained the Queen and much of the neighbouring region with pageants, fireworks, bear baiting, mystery plays, hunting and lavish banquets. It was at huge cost and it almost bankrupted Dudley. It's even been suggested that Elizabeth loaned him money or, or gave him money um, later on because he couldn't afford the debts that he'd incurred putting on this show for the Queen, which is kind of ironic, really. He wanted to create something that could never be forgotten, of splendour, of majesty. He also built and put together something you can also see on the plan, the garden, the Elizabethan garden, which nowadays at Kenilworth has been reconstructed and reimagined um, for visitors. And you can get a sense of what was being put together there. But so he had this garden designed but just for this 19-day trip. Okay, so the whole thing was kind of uh, these buildings, this show, these banquets and everything like that, but also the garden itself were built uh, for Elizabeth's visit in mind and to impress the Queen. He also, put, uh, he also built Leicester's Gatehouse, which is marked as J. Leicester's Gatehouse was originally part of the castle walls and as a form of defence, um, but nowadays it's uh, been changed and altered, so it's no longer acts as a gatehouse. You can't walk or ride through it. Uh, it was converted um, a few hundred years ago now into uh, bedrooms and, and so on and so forth, into something of a house, essentially, which you can visit there if you go. Now, after um, the time of Elizabeth, we see Kenilworth start to go into decline somewhat. During the Civil War in the 1640s, um, it falls out of royal control because, of course, Charles I, those of you who don't know, loses his head. The, the, the royalists are defeated by the parliamentarians. And at this time, the, par the guys in charge of Parliament, Oliver Cromwell and so on, want to make a bit of a, a, a gesture, kind of a symbolic sort of point to say that, that you know, these royal castles are no longer important, they no longer have a role to play, because the monarchy is no longer important and the monarchy no longer has a role to play. So what did they do? They decided to slight them. That's what the word is to be used, but basically that means is they were destroyed, essentially, or half of them were basically half knocked down, so they couldn't be used again to defend the monarchy, couldn't be used again to defend the royalist cause. So you can see on some of the pictures um, that the keep, A, on the plan, um, was essentially one of the walls was blown out. So now there are only three walls fully standing. And one of them, the one that backs onto the garden, was actually uh, blown out by cannon fire to make it useless. So they could no longer use the keep as a form of defence. And since then, the castle has largely dripped into a form of, of ruin, essentially. Now, people have uh, obviously lived on the site for a time, but it becomes something of a romantic ruin by the 19th century, actually when it was uh, written about by the famous author Walter Scott in, in his novel Kenilworth, which is all about the relationship between Robert Dudley and Elizabeth, and it mentions things about Robert's potential um, role in the murder of his, in the, or in the death, I should say, potential role in the death of his wife. Um, so yeah, Kenilworth drifts into um, this romantic ruin. Some of the stones are used even for the houses that we, um, nearby, like the pub and so on. You can kind of see the similar uh, sandstone colour being used there. So Kenilworth's had a long and um, varied history as a fortress, then as a palace, and then into a ruin, essentially. 
but it tells us so much about our history and like kind of the, the significant figures and and how our kind of um, story has evolved but it also gives us such an insight into the um majesty of queen elizabeth and the attitude of some of her most important figures her noblemen like robert dudley and how desperate they were to please her and they were willing to spend a fortune and uh, put their life's work at risk by trying to win her hand and win her favour. Now, sadly, um, we won't get the opportunity to visit Kenilworth Castle uh, this term. There was a planned trip there. We were all going to go in, in, in late June, um, but of course that isn't possible now. Um, if the regulations change and um, these sites become accessible in the, in the near future, I do recommend potentially going along um, with your with your family and so on to check out Kenilworth Castle if you've never been before. It will help your understanding. It will help your kind of learning of this period, definitely. And I should say, and this is something that uh, is worthwhile noting, Kenilworth Castle will be um, part of uh, next year's exam. Um, you, it's a guaranteed section um, where you will study one site. We're studying Kenilworth because that's what the exam board say we've got to do. So it's something you can't ignore. You've got to kind of focus your mind and attention on it. So it's really, really important to get to grips with it. So yeah, so that brings us to the close of the history section and to the end of part three. We'll be back in a few moments with part four. Welcome back to part four. Now this week, um, it's a special new feature that everyone's incredibly excited about. It's time for the humanities department to take a trip to the movies. Humanities at the movies, I'm wondering what's going on. I'm looking up a knowledge. Wondering if it's factually correct, it's time for our conversation. Yes, so we've all enjoyed this week um, a trip back to 1997, and the film was Dante's Peak. It turns day into night. Air into fire. Nothing in the world can compare to its power. The most awesome sight you will ever see may be your last. In the town of Dante's Peak, a volcano is turning nature into a nightmare. Come on! Pierce Brosnan, Linda Hamilton, oh my God. Dante's Peak. The pressure is building. In a world where <laughs> villagers elect a woman. <laughs> so the story of Dante's Peak, as described by a synopsis I found on Google, is that 
Volcanologist uh, Harry Dalton, played by Pierce Brosnan, a.k.a. James Bond, a.k.a. that guy who can't really sing in Mamma Mia. Well, he's, that doesn't narrow it down. Um, and Mayor Rachel Wando, played by Sarah Connor, or should I say uh, Linda Hamilton, uh, finally convinced the unbelieving populace uh, of Dante's Peak that the big one is about to hit and that they need to evacuate immediately, only to discover her two children have gone up the mountain to get their grandmother. With Earth's clock racing against them, they must rescue the kids and grandma before the volcano explodes in a fury of flame and ash a million times more powerful than an atomic bomb. Now, I don't know if that film necessarily, sorry, if that description necessarily sums up uh, the film. Um, firstly, I'll just say I enjoyed it, I think, just about. Um, Mr. Patterson, we'll go to you first. What were your kind of initial impressions of uh, Dante's Peak starring uh, Pierce and uh, Linda? Uh, so I had seen this movie and remembered liking it and watched it again, enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's total schlock it's it's rubbish but somehow it's 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 very entertaining rubbish and um, yeah enjoyed it uh mr de salvo your your first thoughts once you left the cinema in a sense and you uh, uh turned off your tv what did you think yeah like mr Patterson, i had watched this movie years ago probably in dubs going back to what we said <laughs> so um yeah, no, I, I still enjoyed it. And coming from a land with a major volcano, I, you know, I've always taken an interest in, uh, you know, the potential, you know, explosive nature of, you know, um, of these mountains. Um, although I'm sure that Mr. Lawton will have something to say about the type of magma and lava or whatever else. Um, yeah, I thought... Um, um, I was very angry at the grandmother and personally, but that's, you know... Um, yes. In my opinion, I I, quite, uh, I really enjoyed the film. Yeah, oh, good stuff, uh, Mr. Lawton. Obviously, the the purpose of this, and we'll get to this later, is to talk about um, the ge the geographic element, I suppose. What what if anything we can learn or take from these films? But just as a, a piece of cinema, uh, what did you make of it? I think this is one of those films that's defined by the opening credits, and I mean when you've got what now is dated graphics uh, with uh, ominous orchestral strings playing over the top as people are running around and you don't really know what's going on, I think it does set the tone for what's about to happen. And you've got to take the film as it comes. It's definitely in the E-grade uh, category of films and we'll never see or get close to A. It's, it's peaking out there at uh, A, pardon the pun. I think I think if uh, those of you that are, uh, are listening to this and have never heard of Dante's Peak, I mean, where have you been? Uh, but for those of you that are, you know haven't seen this film, I think it's maybe worthwhile comparing it to some of the stuff that you might find with like the Rock in that kind of thing, where you know you kind of leave your brain at the door a little bit, you go along for the fun and games, you know exactly where it's going to end up. I mean, from the almost from the first few shots, yes, of course a volcano is going to erupt. We get that. But in just in terms of the relationships between the characters, we know who's going to, you know, end up with, with, with who. We know who's going to, you know, end up being in peril. We know who's going to end up being right and who's end up going to, going to end up being wrong. It's so signposted. But that is kind of part of the joy of these kind of films where you don't really have to kind of follow it, every little line, every last thing they say. It's just part of kind of enjoying the nonsense as it kind of rolls out, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but, Pierce himself, I mean, 
he I think he found himself lost somewhere in the mid-Atlantic with with that accent um Harry Dalton his character he didn't sound like he was from America he didn't really sound like he was from Ireland but and yet he found himself sounding like he was from nowhere well these old rocks here give us some idea of when this area was last active yeah, when was that? About 7,000 years ago. I, f- I feel like it, w- it was almost a paint-by-numbers of a film, and it was very much 1990s paint-by-numbers of a film. Uh, the sort of character backgrounds that were there, the lost love before that he had had, the single mother um, in the town waiting for him as he came in. And he is a gorgeous man. I don't think we can get away from that. I think he is a gorgeous man. But something that I think dates the film in there is certainly the casual sexual harassment that occurs during the film where Pierce turns to the main female protagonist and takes a picture of her without asking permission and just goes beautiful to her like that. They'd barely known each other for five minutes. And this has already been it. I think in a, with the hashtag Me Too movement having occurred since, uh, it's something that has not stood the test of time very well. I think it's fair to say that the, some elements of this film have dated ever so slightly. But um, I did find, it, you know, it's interesting, of, of course, the fact that um, what you have is uh, Linda Hamilton's character, uh, Rachel Wando, who's the mayor of this small town. It seemed, it's a town that said it has 7,400 people in it. And yet at times it seemed like a huge community. And this is you know, a really, really small place. And uh, she's a mayor. She's a single mom. She owns her own or runs her own coffee shop as well. So that in a way you could argue is a little bit progressive, even though there are certain elements of the movie that is certainly dated quite a bit. And yet in this really small town that she's the mayor of, she goes on live TV and there's like a live television emergency broadcast, despite the fact she is mayor of a town of like a, a few people and their dogs. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy the kind of things that are going on. And also, you barely get any kind of links or nods to the outside world at any point. So like this is a, what would be considered to be like almost like a, a global level catastrophe in terms of its you know, news story. Only at the end, you get a little bit of army involvement and that kind of thing. Effects and that kind of stuff. What do we think about how the film looked 20, 23 years on? I actually thought it looked pretty good, to be honest. Um, lots of the effects are like practical effects. Um, so when it, when it does do the computer stuff, it looks pretty rough. So there's a bit when a guy um, sort of like a, a, a bridge collapses and he gets like catapulted into the lava and it looks absolutely ridiculous. Um, I was wetting myself laughing at that. But other bits, there's bits where like the, the town starts to fall apart. And I think that actually looks really good. I thought, like, they've actually blown up a building and they've actually, it's actual rubble that's fallen down. It's not green screen CGI stuff. Um, or at least it doesn't look it. I felt at the beginning the um, sort of special effects with the first explosion of the volcano, they were pretty poor. Uh, but I agree with Mr. Patterson when the explosions happened, you could see the buildings actually, you know, probably there were miniature, you know, what do you call it, little models, anybody that probably blew up or something. It was a bit more realistic. But at the very beginning, those um, mega balls of um, debris, and uh, I'm sure they've got some other names, um, you know, flying around the place seemed very unrealistic. Um, I mean, we should say, shouldn't we, that like you know, Dante's Peak is not real. It's not a real place, as far as I'm aware, I think. And, and like this, this, um, this volcano, this, you know, active volcano uh, doesn't exist either. So you'd have these shots of the volcano superimposed 
behind this little town. Um, and then you'd have the shot sometimes of like molten lava, which was cl clearly was maybe molten lava, but of course it wasn't happening anywhere near Pierce and Linda. So, you know, that, that it, sometimes the, the green screening situation they had going on uh, didn't always look that great, but I suppose it was, it was 1997 after all. Before we get into um, the geography, or the sort of the specifics of the geography, um, we've got to talk about grandma and we've got to talk about those incredibly annoying children. Um, one of which I was convinced was Joseph Gordon-Levitt and it turns out it couldn't be because of the age difference and whatever, but he just looked a spitting image of him when he was a kid. Um, grandma is infuriating. Um, grandma ends up, I mean, she lives a little bit closer to the volcano and she, doesn't want to leave her kind of house behind, which, you know, fair enough. And then the kids go on this kind of crazed mission to try and save grandma. At one point, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt kid, who's called Graham, which is a, a name that no child um, has had for about 50 years. Um, Graham goes off driving the car, and his feet can't reach, uh, reach the pedals. He goes off driving to save grandma. Pierce and poor Linda, they've got to go and save the kids and then save grandma as well. And the dog, what's the dog called? Billy. Billy, is it? Yeah. I've got, it, it, Billy? I've got it in my notes. Isn't it Ruffy? Ruffy. <laughs> cool. Ruff, Ruffy. The grandma named that dog as well. That's another strike. Well, yeah. A, a grandma, you know, she's grandma and the kids and Pierce and Linda are all together. And then they go out onto this voyage across the acid lake. And there's just so many things. I, I, I did wet myself at this point when grandma you know, sacrifices herself. She dives into the lake uh, to sort of, um, you know, give up her own life to save the kids, which should be a really harrowing, horrific moment. But in fact, I couldn't help but find it humorous. Maybe that says something more about me. I don't know. But what do we make of grandma, folks? Do we think she's the villain of the piece? I really found her as infuriating as you probably. And um, I think she should have, well, I suppose, died in that heroic moment Moment, just as they reached the shore, not like afterwards during, you know, the walk, so to speak. Pierce was dragging grandma yeah. over his back. Exactly. Um, also, yeah, she's, she's put everybody in danger, very selfish. I would not, you know, would not have gone up the mountain to save her, frankly. She had several phone calls. <laughs> I uh, I did find the sort of um, the reveal of her horrifically burned legs um, quite funny because they they were only half as badly burned as my legs were after all that sun last week. Um, <laughs> so maybe the effects let them down a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, Grandma. She for me, she is definitely the uh, the antagonist, as it were. Not Dante's Peak itself. It's it's Grandma that is the the issue in this film. Um, right, Mr. Lawton, I think we need to sort of start pouring down into the geography a little bit. Uh, now, I'm no expert on volcanoes. Well, actually, no, tell a lie. I feel like I am now after watching Dante's Peak. Um, but I've got a few questions. How likely is this ever to happen? You know, in terms of the, I guess, the uncertainty, I suppose, the fact that at the beginning of the film, Pierce's character, who's like this volcanologist, is kind of convinced that there's an issue, there's something, gonna, something bad's going to happen. And yet the rest of his team are pretty sort of like, nah. They're being quite cautious. Is that the way it goes? I mean, do people, are, can they be more certain? Are they more certain? I've uh, never worked for the USGS or the Volcanology Department, but um, I know that any good scientist out there um, listens to the science and believes with the theories that they 
find themselves aligning with the most. And um, they, at the beginning of it, were taking seismographs. They had said that there were shallow earthquakes within 10 or 20 kilometers of the surface of the Earth. It's very shallow indeed. It's usually an indication that a magma chamber beneath the volcano is becoming more active than usual. It doesn't mean much more than that. They went and looked for signs of gases being released, which was very evident. And he was just connecting the dots. But with any tragedy, and we've seen it through a biological agent recently in the real world, but with any tragedy or natural disaster that's looming, there are the scientists who can see all the telltale signs of something occurring. And they only need one time for those things to line up correctly for the natural disaster to occur and cause lots of damage. But there can be so many times when you can have three out of four things happen and one doesn't and it means everything will be okay. But everybody remembers that one time, that one, well, those, not one time, but the many times when that happens, when you get very close to disaster occurring and societies, economies, don't want to stop and grind to the halt on there being only 95% evidence that something's a risk. And the town goes through, actually, I think something that's very realistic, the dilemma that you pose. And um, the A-level geographers will know, I refer to Hans Rosling, uh, an outbreak of Ebola in Western Africa. He shuts down an entire city and stops the roads coming in and out of the city because there's been an outbreak of Ebola. Sounds sensible. But people needed the job, so what did they do? Climbed into boats, tried to get round on the lake, past the roadblocks people could not swim they overcrowded the boat and people died drowning in the lake there he felt responsible for thousands of deaths of people who were in poverty trying to get to those lakes so what he had to do from then on was keep the roads open and check people going in and out like we're doing at the moment in society and stopping economies and doing that you end up with egg on your face as a scientist and people go oh well you always said that probably would happen but it may not happen people always turn around to scientists and say that and it's unfortunately what good scientists will always have in their careers all the science kind of points one way but then life carries on the world's a random place and it doesn't happen so yeah it's very realistic yeah because there was like that push and pull at the start of the film where it's clear you know watching this film that Pierce Brosnan's character is the hero you know that a volcano is going to erupt otherwise the film would be quite unusual I think if it didn't um, so you kind of know the way it's been signposted. But yeah, there is that kind of interesting like, um, dialogue and debate at the start of the film where there's a lot of people who are sceptical or certainly don't want to believe, I guess. They don't want to kind of, um, you know, deal with the consequences of if it could potentially happen. Another thing that happened that interested me, that I'd, like, I'd like to know a bit about, the way the, the water uh, is affected, the water supply. Um, so one of the re things that makes a Brosnan's character realise that something is up is to do with the colour and the, is it the sulphur in the water, the smell of the water? Is that something you've heard of before? Yeah, very much so. Anybody who goes to Iceland, um, when you turn on the hot water taps, they are uh, heated by the geothermal energy and the volcanic energy. And with any gas, like we discussed the other week, uh, with the limnic eruptions occurring in uh, Lake Nyos in uh, Cameroon, um, gas dissolves into water so as it rises through the fissures uh, the cracks in the earth uh, beneath the lakes and the water supply as they've got here now volcanic rock has got a great mineral contact we all know volvic water um, so 
I wouldn't be surprised if in the area the water was actually quite good. But with the increased volcanic uh, activity, the gases rise to the rock and then they start to dissolve into the water, which then means that it carries the extra sulfur. And lakes and water or bodies of water that are found around volcanoes can be extremely acidic. They can go down to alkaline levels as low as uh, 0.1 pH. For those of you that know your science, 7 is a perfect um, neutral pH which is ideal really um, but the acidic nature can go all the way down to 0.1 which is is worse than sulfuric acid uh, and for those of you who know about sulfuric acid it'll go straight to your skin. Is that is that kind of uh, then what happens to the two um, the, the couple towards the beginning of the film who are in the uh, the sort of the, the, hot, the hot springs having a, a lovely dip yeah, I think I think at that point there, they are actually just burnt by the heat of the water. So because the volcanic activity, I think it just boils them like uh, instantly. So yeah. to see, you get to see their mangled corpses, don't you? While the yeah. children, especially, yeah. uh, maybe knock some sense into some of them. Uh, but the part where they're on the boat and they're going through, and Pierce is there shoveling the water with his hands, rowing along. Uh, that seeing what happens to the grandma, I'm surprised his hand doesn't burn off as well. That's quite strange. Uh, but oh well. Um, these are where there there are um, inaccuracies in the film, I suppose. A bit of a bit of poetic license potentially, yeah. Because uh, Piercy has a a jacket around his hand as a way, a means of trying to row this boat across the the lake of acid. At the same time, I think it's worthwhile remembering these children. I would guess they're probably what around about the ages of like eight and ten, eleven, something like that. Um, they're being sang "Row, Row, Row Your Boat." by their parents to them. I think those kids are a little bit too old to be comforted by that particular nursery rhyme at such a pressing time when they're about to sink into the acidic, um, into the acidic lake. But there you are. Um, big question, can you drive across lava? Uh, yes, um, it depends upon uh, the viscosity of the lava and uh, actually what Dante's peak did show a few times was that through a volcanic eruption, the viscosity of the lava, the the solidity of it. So um, sometimes you have lava which is trickle-like, uh, treacle, I should say, treacle-like. Um, that's a, it's rhyolitic lava, um, which moves slowly. It oozes. Where you have basaltic lava, which is a lot more fluid and um, even similar to water. And at some points you see that flowing lava, and at other points you see the basaltic lava that's moving slowly because it's moving slowly. On the top, the reason why the lava isn't um, bright uh, orange and red is because it's started to form a crust, like we've got on our earth beneath us. The, what we walk upon it is the rock there. So in theory, yes, it can dry across the top i don't think anybody would dare to do it because if you punctured through it the lava underneath will be minimum of 200 degrees celsius well it, it doesn't do his tires any good anyway mm. um um mr DeSalvo, um obviously uh, you grew up in in sicily close to uh, mount etna um what kind of i guess it's hard to, to, to know an active volcano living and growing up so close to one, uh, what kind of experiences did you have? What, how, how often was it discussed? Is it something that was in like the popular consciousness? Um, I believe in my home city, because it's not the one immediately kind of closest to the volcano, it's um, less visible. So we don't see the volcano from where my parents are based. But, um, you know, the airport is very close, as you would obviously place an airport near a volcano um so I, I know that it has caused disruption to like travels um and other i guess 
activities. Um, we get the ashes quite regularly. Um, I think differently from the volcano in Dante's Speak, Etna is a very um, frequently active volcano, so it keeps you know producing you know well it keeps erupting in a what we call it a healthy volcano in our own ways so i think there's a less of a of an unexpected eruption probably because it's quite a regular flow um of magma that comes out and it's often very visible especially at night time as you even just drive through uh, the motorway you can see sometimes the red you know bright part um i suppose um unfortunately um there's a lot of abuse buildings if that makes sense i don't know if that's the word like people have actually built houses on the sides of the volcano which obviously don't meet the regulations so i think um the issue in um catania where uh, Etna is really is the fact that people have chosen to live a little bit too close to the volcano itself um, but um, I think you know it doesn't affect many of the inhabitants as such I think you get the the clouds of ashes you get the ashes on my mom's balcony and she will moan about sweeping it you know forever uh, at times so it really very much depends on the wind and the strength of the wind the direction of the wind um, Mr. Patterson, you wanted to jump in. Uh, well, Mr. DeSalvo is not the only one who grew up in the shadow of a volcano. Um, so Edinburgh is built around Arthur's Seat, which is an extinct volcano, uh, which everyone in Edinburgh is taught when we're like wee kiddies. So Dante's Peak came out in what, 1996, Seven. 97? So I would have been about four when it came out. So I wouldn't have seen it probably until it was on TV. So I would have been about, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe a bit younger. And as soon as it finished, and I was quite freaked out by it. Like, I just thought it was like quite scary, the whole scenario. As soon as it finished, my dad said, um, Arthur's seat's meant to go in a few years. And I was terrified, like could not sleep, like absolutely terrified. Um, so this brought back some of those memories as well. But fortunately, no extinct volcanoes in Solio. So, yeah, so the fears of uh, ash clouds over the Royal Mile and all sorts, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Arthur Seat's a, a volcanic plug, um, so it's an extrusive uh, volcanic lung feature that's there now. So that plug would have been sat in the crater, um, like a cork almost, and the fact that it's extinct now means that, yeah, I think it should be safe in the mighty streets of the Leith for years to come. Uh, so let's let's wrap this up then by asking each of us um, to give it a bit of a star rating. So um, out of five, um, what do we make of Dante's Peak? You can judge it as a film. You can judge it as a piece of geography if you want to. But out of five, what do we make of it? Mr. Patterson. Uh, four out of five. Loved that. Yeah, strong. Okay. And uh, uh, Mr. DeSalvo. Yeah, I was going to go with four as well, actually. Yeah, I enjoyed it overall and uh, some good bits there. And uh, Mr Lawton, finally, out of five? I find it a bit more painful as a film. I, I would give it a three there. But I must say the geography, although it is make-believe, um, the actual science behind a lot of what's being said is spot on. It's really quite good. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of good geography in there. I'd probably uh, go uh, with probably three. If I'm allowed halves, I might go three and a half out of five. But, you know, whatever it was, I, I did enjoy it and uh, it was good fun. I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it anytime soon again. 
Um, I feel like I've seen that film in, in different guises many times before. Um, but we have a new film for next, next time out. It's going to be a film with a slight historical flavour. So next, for next episode, you're all going to watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Excellent, dude! <laughs> and uh, these guys are already incredibly excited. Um, okay, we'll talk about that next time out, guys. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the first edition of Humanities at the Movies. Humanities at the Movies I'm wondering what's going on I'm looking up for knowledge Wondering if it's factually correct It's time for our conversation That brings us to the end of part four. We're back in just a few moments with part five. Welcome back to part five. It's Language Liaison. And we're going to go and speak to Mr. DeSalvo um, about, well, what do you have in store for us this week, Mr. DeSalvo? Um, well, I thought this week I'd uh, shift the attention a little bit to the countries that obviously uh, where French and Spanish are, um, you know, is spoken, um, but they aren't, you know, France or Spain, because a lot of the time we focus our attention on those. Um, and just giving you some facts and uh, a couple of figures, probably some curious, curious facts about um, some of those uh, you might know already. So, um, yeah, so that's what I've thought, uh, really. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to start with the um, Francophonie. Uh, or francophonie, basically the French-speaking world. Um, you know, if you study French, you should know this because there are some clear maps outside my classroom, I think, that uh, point out that uh, which countries have French as their um, one of their native, sorry, official languages. And um, I mean, historically, this is to do with the fact that you know countries like you know Spain, France had large empires which then obviously meant that the former colonies um well nowadays former colonies um still have a very high french influence both culturally but also linguistically um, and because at one point france ruled around eight percent of the world's countries obviously this has had an impact on a large amount of well territories i would say and when we study these uh, countries, uh, the word Dom Tom actually comes up. Um, it is an acronym anyway, and it is in French, um, but it does include countries such as, um, you know, Guadeloupe in the Caribbean, it got French Guiana, I think you call it, in South America, and French Polynesia uh, in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so, you know, they are quite scattered around and um, certainly one of the most known French speaking countries is Canada. Um, although it's not really, um, although the, in the whole of Canada you can find French speaking people, it is mainly Quebec, um, the part where French is one of the official languages. Um, um, along with um, English and 80% people in Quebec actually uh, speak French. Um, now, um, in places like Quebec, tourist information will be provided both in French and in English. Um, however, in Quebec in, particularly, in particular, sorry, there are laws in place to restrict the amount of English um, that can be used, for example, in shops because um, the French 
want to protect their language and culture. Um, simply, uh, probably few people know that um, um, some American states also uh, have a quite strong French influence, uh, especially the um, in the south of Louisiana and New Orleans. Um, and even nowadays, French is still spoken, for example, in Louisiana. Um, people may wonder, you know, what the differences are, obviously, with the French spoken in France. I know Mr. Lawton was asking this last week, um, well, sorry, the last episode anyway, about, you know, how different um, the accents or the actual vocabulary is. Um, I mean, there are obviously various versions of the French language as such. Obviously, everybody can still understand each other. Um, but, you know, there's also the Creole, you know, version, which is a bit of a hybrid um, version of French that you can sort of see in the Caribbean. Um, and one, uh, obviously, we've got influence of French language and culture in Africa, mainly in Northern Africa. Um, but one thing that you might know is that um, all of these French-speaking countries, uh, a little bit like the um, Commonwealth uh, countries, um, gather together uh, every four years in the Jeu de la Francophonie. So it's the uh, Francophones Games. Did you ever hear about this? So it's Never. pretty much like the Commonwealth Games. Uh, except it's among the countries that um, speak French. And there are 55 countries that uh, take part. Um, and um, they, the way it's organised is that participation um, is obviously, you know, um, well, every country sends the same amount of participants. But uh, um, in countries like Canada and Belgium, because um, not everybody in those countries has French as their um, first language. The participation of athletes is restrict restricted to only those um, athletes who actually have French as um, the first language, if that makes sense. Um, and it's about three uh, sorry, 3,000 athletes uh, that compete. They were launched in 1989 and um, they are Olympic um, Games like with you know various disciplines like athletics etc um, and they've also got you know the opening ceremonies that will include song you know dancing etc um, so the um, last uh, francophone games were held in the Ivory Coast uh, and the next one are going to be in the um, Republic or Democratic Republic of Congo in 2021. There you go. Yes, this is a country we spoke about um, recently, I think. Um, obviously, for, um, you know, in a similar way, Spanish-speaking uh, countries um, are also, um, you know, well, it's not just Spain as we know. Um, and there's about 408, uh, sorry, between 480 to 580 million of Spanish speakers um, globally um, and this does include Spanish as a second language um, and this number makes Spanish the second most spoken language in the world um, in terms of yeah its speakers basically. A lot of them uh, live in South America and um, but um, again you know 
we have some differences with the traditional Spanish language that we teach in school, for example. Um, and I will come back to this in a bit about differences, actually. Um, historically, uh, I'm sure you can teach me more about this. Um, it has to do with the fact that, you know, people from Spain migrated to the new lands that they conquered between 1492 and 1898. Um, and obviously the Spaniards took with themselves the language and culture, they integrated into the, you know, the land that they occupied. And, um, you know, they influenced the continents and the countries, um, you know, in various ways. Now, today, um, while, while I'm not going to mention the amount of countries where Spanish is spoken, I think one that is um, worth mentioning is um, Easter Island. I found it was quite, um, you know, uh, curious. Um, very famous for its statues, but, uh, um, you know, Easter Island belongs to what country? Chile. 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 It's chilly. Um, but anyway, I read that apparently Easter Island is the only place in Austronesian world where people fluently speak Spanish. I had not got a clue what Austronesian meant, so I had to look at it myself. Um, anyway, it's a new word for me. Places in like the Pacific? I yeah, know. I think yeah. because it's kind of between Australia and the well, South America, when you look at the map from that angle, I guess. Um, so, um, yeah, one thing that I wanted to mention, and I think because Mr. Lawton, you asked this um, last time as well, is the use of the language that is slightly different from, you know, Spanish in Spain and Spanish in the, in the former colonies. Um, so whilst, again, you know, everybody understands each other, there are some words that will be different. And the reason for this apparently is to do with the fact that when Spanish colonizers traveled, um, you know, what was happening in the original country is that, you know, set amounts of words was about to change. So while it changed back at home, it didn't then follow the same change in the new, country that they colonized so for example um the word the word for um you know in the usa you know we say autumn in english you know just to give you a parallel situation has to do with the fact that you know british colonizers went to america fall was more common at the time in well before the latin sort of base word was introduced um, and this is why now, you know, Americans will use more the word fall and we, in England, we use the word autumn. So something similar has happened, you know, um, in Spanish. But I don't want to give you loads of words because our listeners might not necessarily um, know. And then um, there's the pronunciation, obviously, changes uh, that um, aren't extreme to a point where you can't understand you know, Spanish speakers from other countries other than Spain. So yeah, speaking of differences, perhaps the most notable, notable difference um, between pronunciation in Spain and um, Latin America is the um, lisp. Um, although it's not technically really a lisp, um, obviously that's common in Madrid and the whole of Spain, but not 
in South America. Um, and it stems from this legend um, that has, you know, as a protagonist, King Ferdinand, who's, um, well, who had a lisp, and his lisp was copied by the Spanish, um, like, aristocracy. Um, but as it's often the case, this myth or legend isn't particularly um, correct. Um, I think it's just more of the fact that the sound came from, you know, other reasons. Um, but it didn't make it into, um, onto the colonies. So yeah, here you go a bit more about the, you know, Francophone and Hispanophone world today. Thank you very much, Mr. DeSalvo, for uh, Language Liaison this week. Uh, very enjoyable, very enlightening, very educational. Um, as part of Language Liaison again, uh, or this time out, um, we are going to have another 90 second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90. How long do we need? How long do we need? 90. 90. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. What a challenge. What a challenge. Okay, the 90 second challenge this week. Mr. DeSalvo, could you remind us, without giving too much away, of course, what you set Mr. Patterson uh, two weeks ago? Yeah, so Mr. Patterson was uh, asked to look into the subjunctive mood, which yeah, I'm sure we'll hear a lot about today, um, which is something you guys have also in the English language, but um, very hardly managed to explain to us foreigners sometimes when, when we ask about it. So um, yeah, both Spanish and French have the subjunctive mood. I'd like to know what Mr. Patterson made of it. So um, talking of, of the subject well, of mood, I suppose, what mood are you in, Mr. Patterson, ahead of this challenge? Um, confused, is that mood? Okay, so we'll see, if all, we'll see if we're all equally confused after your 90-second challenge. Um, right then, so, uh, Mr. Patterson, are you ready? No. <laughs> well, you're going to do it anyway. Uh, you have 90 seconds, starting very shortly. One, two, three go uh okay so um a subjunctive mood so in the videos that i watched it said that french people get this wrong all the time uh, which is marvelous apparently uh, so the subjunctive mood is something to do with verbs um and it's used when you're talking about something that is not real so like wishes or dreams, sort of hypothetical situations, you would use the subjunctive mood. Uh, the opposite of that is the indicative mood, is, which is what you use when you're talking about something that is real, uh, like a fact. So for example, uh, using a subjunctive mood, if I was to say, um, if I were you, I would run, that is correct, because it is... Um, it is like an opinion thing. Uh, if I was you, I would run is incorrect. But I don't know why that's incorrect. Um, and there is a that clause, which means it's different when you use the word that. But again, I don't understand what or why or how. Uh, so to, uh, to sum up, um, I don't know what the subjunctive mood is. Wow. 
Okay, well, that was 90 seconds I'll never get back. Um, I um, I never want the languages challenge. Oh, my days. Just don't give it to me. <laughs> so that that is the result of, like, about two and a half hours worth of research. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not, Mr. Patterson, because otherwise it'd feel quite, you know, bad. I know Mr. Alkerstam struggled with Dr. Mr. Van der Trump, but, you know, I, I thought that was, um, yeah... Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 still, I still think Dr. Mrs. P. Vandertramp is someone you go for a blood test, but, you know, there we are. <laughs> yes. Um, no, in all fairness, Mr. Patterson, it is a very difficult um, topic to kind of explain. Also to, well, especially probably to English native speakers, because, um, you know, subjunctive mood is not something that your language is particularly full of. And um, I think the clearest example that we have um, when we learn English, um, is the sentence, God save the Queen, actually. Um, in the sentence, God save the Queen, save, which is the verb, is in the subjunctive mood, because normally you would have to otherwise add an S to save. You know, God saves the Queen because, I don't know, he likes her or, you know, things like that. But in that save the Queen, there's an element of, um, allowing and letting so it's almost like saying let God save the, the Queen or you know let's hope God saves the Queen and um, but also as you said you know when there is uncertainty and doubt uh, the French the Spanish the Italians will use this mood it's just obviously a different way of conjugating the verb um, but it's very very difficult to translate into English and only our A-level kids are really sort of um, probably grade nine students get to use it efficiently in their uh, work but thank you for uh, spending two hours and a half i'd love to know what your sources were you know <laughs> to give you fair, such an enlightenment same fair play mr patterson is like that's incredible like you've done really well there considering yeah I mean, we've, um, we've, we've all learned something congratulations mr patterson are coming through unscathed largely unscathed uh, another 90 second challenge so on such a high point we are very sad all of us i think to say goodbye this time not to one of our uh, lovely contributors and and uh, and so on but to the one of our features to the 90 second challenge um it's been it's been sometimes emotional sometimes thrilling sometimes educational occasionally educational um the 90 second challenge yeah we've learned about so much uh, over the past few weeks but Every good thing must come to an end. So we say goodbye, farewell, so long, or Vida Zane, to the 90 second challenge. Let's hear that music one more time. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90. How long do we have? 90. How long do we need? How long do we need? 90. 90. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. What a challenge. What a challenge. So that brings us to the end, I think, of another HD lockdown pod. Um, all that's left of me to do is to say, obviously, to all of you, um, stay safe, stay alert. I think that's still the message I'm supposed to be giving to you all. Um, look after yourselves and each other. Um, Mr. Patterson, farewell. So long. And Mr. DeSalvo, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Adios. Uh, Mr. Lawton, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, ta -ra. All right, guys, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. It's like riding a bike. <laughs> Making this podcast like riding a bike.